Awesome. And there we go. There is that fantastic opening that shows that we are also part of Children's Health Defense Live, chd.live. Fantastic to be part of this whole community here. I want to say hello and welcome to 1150 AM KKNW and Inform Life Radio. I'm your host, Bernadette Pager. And with me is my co-host, Javier Figueroa. Hi, Javier. Oh, I, I'm not hearing you. Oh, let's let's get you unmuted there. There we go. Hello, Bernadette. <laughs> Good to see you again. And I hope you're moved in completely over in, in Tennessee. Yeah, we are, you know, and now starts the long journey of making your house your home, you know, but we, we just love it here. Just it, I, I can't tell you how amazing the welcoming spirit is here. So you would think all that with everybody flooding to this state, you think there'd be a little bit of, you know, leave us alone, but I, we have been so welcome. It's been, it's really awesome. Um, I, you know, today, and I think it's still going on down at SeaTac in Washington state, we've got a big old rally going on down there. I, were you aware of that Javier? Uh, I was not, unfortunately, uh, just been, you know, busy with, uh, the work that pays the bills. So exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, but the U S freedom flyers, uh, we're doing a rally called the Rally in the Rain, but luckily it wasn't raining. And Informed Choice Washington people and um, out there streaming for Children's Health Defense got it broadcast. And, and so it's a, a nice big crowd showed up and, I, and they may still be there um, getting lots of honks and waves and thumbs up and support. Um, you know, really opposing the mandates that are not based on science and definitely not based on our civil rights or our medical freedom rights. So uh, a shout out to those awesome people. I think you can go to usfreedomflyers.com to learn more about that organization of pilots and flight attendants um, and, and do what you can to support them and their efforts um, to retain their jobs and, and you know, that's what we all want, right? Is just to be allowed to live life uh, normally here. Um, you know, I've got some really great stuff I want to talk to you about today, Javier. But what I want to do to start with, I want to share some inspiration here. We, we've got ourselves a new theme song. So I'm going to play this here for you. See what you think. I will not come. Take me to task Cause I don't wanna wear a mask Or take a vaccine That could maybe make me die They got no scientific evidence To back that crap up All they do is feed us life a lot That's why I will not comply Now since back last March I've had an achy, breaky heart Like old Billy Ray Cyrus I've been catching a case of the blues from the around this damn coronavirus now they're telling us we gotta keep our chin divers up even if we got the shot in the arm nobody's talking about exercise or eating food that's fresh grown from the farm that's why i will not comply Trying to take me to task Cause I don't want to wear a mask Or take a vaccine that could maybe make me die They got no scientific evidence To back that crap up All they do is feed us lie after lie That's why I will 
the violence is for us to break the silence right now. So if you tend to agree and you're pissed off like me, stand your ass up and scream it out loud. Sing, I will not comply. Quit trying to take me to task, cause I don't want to wear a mask or take a vaccine that could maybe make me die. They got no scientific evidence to back that crap up. All they do is feed us lie after lie. That's why I will not comply. Yeah, I'm here to tell you people I will not comply. No. That's the gospel. What do you think? There we go. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> and I apologize. I, you know, when you listen to stuff on your own, you don't have on certain filters. You know, if it's not a kid in a room, and you're not on the radio. And I apologize to KKNW if there were two words in there that are not allowed on the radio. Um, but I just, that's Blind Joe, a fabulous artist, you know, and it's, it just, it just feels so good to shout that out, tap your toes. And um, yeah, I really like it. You know, it's interesting when I, when I first played that that video um, that a lot of people now have discovered, and I'm hoping it's going to go viral, it then led me to a video that he had done in March 2020. So a year and a half ago, March when we didn't know anything, we were still a little cautious. We, you know, you and I, or at least I, because I was awake at that time, and you were kind of new on the journey. Yeah. The CDC was just beginning to like change the death certificate. We were just figuring out that PCRs were just ridiculous and, and, and inaccurate and the whole thing. So everybody was still a little bit nervous, right? Absolutely. Wine Joe did a video that was really fun and toe tapping, and it was just encouraging people to stay home right? Do the right thing, you know, let's stay home. And, and it was, it was a great little ditty, but look what he learned in a year and a half. So, and I love that because that's where we all were. We were all like, okay, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to do the right thing. We're going to protect each other, protect ourselves. We're going to figure out what's going on. But by gum, he didn't stop thinking over the last year and a half. He woke way up. <laughs> Very true. And yeah. what, that's one of the things that we have to really start considering is that, uh, from my experience, uh, one of the reasons there was such a big divide is uh, people are just sticking to one point of view or one news source that represents yeah. one set of facts and ignoring completely uh, the other set of facts that are out there. So it's really an educational process that people have to come into their own. Like, for example, you know, asking the question, well, wait a minute, why do we have to wear masks? Or uh, why do we have to vaccinate five to 11 year olds? So it, it's, it's really a waking up process. And like you said, a year and a half ago, he was saying, stay home. And now he's, I will not comply. Right. You know, that's a journey of a lot of people. And, you know, the sad thing is, which we've said many times before, the reason so many people are complying and putting on the mask is because the best of themselves has been co-opted yes right but a few people at the top because the science does not support the lockdowns the mask up does not support these genetic injections at all but what we have and what we entered covid with is a captured public health system and a captured media and exactly. let's let's talk about the media real quick here because when anytime anybody says, how can you believe that everybody on TV is lying? Well, they don't know they're lying. 
the problem with most of the mainstream legacy outlets right now is if it came from the CDC or the FDA or what they consider a trusted news source, they grab it off the wire and they read it and everybody reads it. And you cannot have a thriving democracy, a thriving republic when your journalists don't question every stinking thing coming out of the mouth of the government, right? Yes. So here we are. So you've got good people reading bad copy. That's what it is, right? That's what it is, exactly. And there's a great video, um, uh, basically, uh, a, a YouTuber uh, uh, was asking a, a sociologist, you know, what, why is it that, you know, we're still having this divide and how did so many people just say, uh, I'm going to go with this? And it was, you know, the title of it was, why do so many uh, still buy into the narrative? And this was an interview with a uh, professor over at the University of Ghent in the Netherlands, uh, mm-hmm. which was absolutely fascinating. Uh, Mattia Desmet, professor of clinical psychology. And basically, he said that, you know, this to him, when he views it, is almost akin to falling under kind of uh, uh, spell or, or, or mass uh, psychosis. Mm-hmm. And he goes and details each and every one of these steps as to how, when people are uh, uh, traumatized, how instead of fighting against uh, what, what, what's oppressing them, they unite with other people that have been traumatized to basically find meaning out of that trauma. Mm-hmm. And that's how you start getting the split of people that mm-hmm. pro mandates and people that are against mandates because mm-hmm. people find meaning in different ways. And it's yeah. really about finding meaning. And again, it's wow. not to ridicule people that no. find meaning in, you know, saying we have to follow these rules, we have to protect other people. Those are very noble yes. directions yes. to go. But it's the source uh, of the meaning that, that, uh, that is driving it that is really corrosive. It's basically saying you must give up your rights. And wow. that's a, that's the that's the opposite of what we need to do. Yeah, exactly. And I love that <clears throat> insight there. And what I would pray is that the people who are finding meaning in going along will be able to see they can find meaning in the lesson of how easy it is to have our freedom stolen, how easy it is for a whole, millions of really good people to be led astray. Right. So that as a, as a community, as a culture, we don't let go of our best selves. We don't let go of wanting to do what's best for our, our fellow man, but we are more able to see when that is being stolen. Right. It's, it's like, like we were very, like, we were like kids. We're teenage country in a way, culturally. I mean, in Germany, they, they can get a million people in the streets protesting what's happening in the United States. We've never been captured before, you know, I yeah. mean, on, on this territory, nothing like this has happened, whereas other countries have cultural memory of being invaded, of yes. being taken over um, by different governments. And for us, it's a new experience. Yeah, that is very true. Very, very true. So that, you know, the next thing I wanted to talk to you about is what's going on um, with the wonderful Dr. Paul Merrick of the FLCCC. I'm going to go find real quick here and I think I'll, um, I'll go ahead and share screen there if I can do that again. I wish I could do this a little more quickly. There we go. Share screen. So um, I encourage everybody to routinely visit flccc.net. 
um, it leads you to the COVID19criticalcare.com website. Fantastic information. These are frontline pulmonary care, critical care specialists who are fighting for freedom. Freedom, medical freedom, the freedom to um, treat patients to the best of their ability with whatever is on the shelf. And the medical industrial complex is fighting them. And so Dr. Paul Merrick, I'm going to read just this headline here. Um, it's, it's patients at Santerra Norfolk General Hospital are dying needlessly. That's Dr. Paul Merrick. So in a press release issued, um, it was on November 9th, the FLCCC announced that its co-chief medical officer, Dr. Paul Merrick, filed suit against Santerra Healthcare System, that's where he works, for instituting a policy preventing him and other physicians from administering proven life-saving treatments. We take an oath as doctors to do no harm, said Dr. Pierre Corey, co-chief medical officer of the FLCCC. No doctor should be forced to watch their patient die, knowing that more could have been done to save them. And, you know, they really have, they had these in, in, inexpensive, on the shelf, proven safe and effective tools taken from them. And they watch patients die. And to hear them, it's just, it's heartbreaking. And really they is. said enough, we cannot do that. And he hated to, um, you know, go against his own hospital where he works. You know, he's a man of deep respect for, you know, where he works and that whole employer-employee relationship, but he just couldn't do it anymore. So I wanna, um, I wanna share with you if this works here. This wonderful little video. So yesterday it was the day in court. We don't have a verdict from the judge yet. Um, let's see if I find this right here, uh, the Twitter. And hopefully this will play there for we go. us. Yeah, let me, let me get the sound going. a dear man um so humble I think he's it's ludicrous oh sorry the um pierre corey's video started playing too i love dr corey invited him on the show today but he's just so overwhelmed what's going on yeah. he said take a rain check and we'll have him back on again very soon um but here's this man multi-published deeply respected um you know, it's got these life-saving protocols. They continues to improve, you know, and, and as, as the dynamics change, as the disease changes, he changes with it. And you saw him going to that courtroom absolutely in tears. And I just pray that the judge hears the, the incredible evidence. And it, it will be precedent setting. It will. No question. Yeah. And I, you know, I just, I pray that 
that the, the right outcome comes, he's set free and all doctors in the United States and everywhere are set free to actual practice the great art of medicine um, instead of being dictated from above. And that is, that is the essence of what uh, medical freedom should be and for physicians to be uh, the judges of their own conscience and, and practice, mm-hmm. not, the admi- not the administrators. And it's the no. same thing for teaching. Mm-hmm. Teachers need to be allowed to teach not be not be uh, beholden to administrators in the educational setting as well. So it, yeah. it goes a long way and across many systems. It, it certainly does. So the next thing that I want to play for us, and then we can interrupt and um, and do well. Actually, first let me take you to this this website where I found this because there was a fantastic summit recently. Let me share this amazing summit that took place in Florida, the Global COVID Summit. So go to Global. Uh, let me just start over here. Global covidsummit.org and you're going to find the most amazing videos in nice like 20 30 minute half hour chunks you can see the whole thing is like seven hours or something but all these (laughs) chunks that you can you can find your favorites and share and this if you just want to have one great source of material to send to your legislators to send to your doctor um, you know, to send to your mother, to, to send to anybody to help them see what's going on and to show them why changes must happen. This is the website. The videos on here, it was a, um, it was a summit of leading physicians. And, you know, in this, they, they updated a declaration. Um, let me see where their declaration is. See if I can find that. Oh, here's their declaration. I'll read that real quick here. Javier, did the did it switch over to the declaration page um, as I went? Yes, it did. Oh, good. Okay, so the physicians' declaration: We, the physicians of the world, united and loyal to the Hippocratic oath, recognizing the imminent threat to humanity brought forth by current COVID nineteen policies, are compelled to declare the following. Whereas 20 months of research, millions of patients treated, hundreds of clinical trials performed, and scientific data shared, we have demonstrated and documented our success and understanding in combating combating COVID-19. Whereas in considering the risks versus benefits of major policy decisions, thousands of physicians and medical scientists worldwide have reached consensus on three foundational principles. Now, therefore, it is resolved that healthy children shall not be subject to forced vaccination. And there's more you can read if you want to click to to read the supporting evidence to that very strong statement. The bullet points are negligible clinical risks from SARS-CoV-2 infection exist for healthy children under 18. Long-term safety of the current COVID vaccines in children cannot be determined prior to instituting such policies. Without high-powered reproducible long-term safety data, risks to the long-term health status of children remain too high to support use in healthy children. Children risk severe adverse events from receiving the vaccine. Permanent physical damage to the brain, heart, immune, and reproductive system associated with SARS-CoV-2 spike protein-based genetic vaccines has been demonstrated in children. 
healthy unvaccinated children are critical to achieving herd immunity. Natural immunity is proven to tolerate infection, benefiting community protection while there is sufficient data to assess whether COVID vaccines assist in herd immunity. And you know, the consensus even beyond that is that they do not. Resolved that naturally immune persons recovered from SARS-CoV-2 shall not be subject to any restrictions or vaccine mandates. And then it goes on with bullet points about natural immunity. Resolved that all health agencies and institutions shall cease interfering with physicians treating individual patients. More bullet points. Recommended legislative executive, executive action. We believe that violating any of these three principles unnecessarily and directly risks death to our citizens. We hereby recommend the leaders of states, provinces, and nations legislate or take executive action to prohibit the three practices described above. And then they signed it. And then we've got, you know, we've got the wonderful doctors of the FLCCC, and we have doctors from around the world. And I believe they have it set up so that if you are a physician, um, and maybe even a scientist that they are um, asking for more signatures, just everybody pile on board here. So go to um, uh, back to that website, Globit, um, Global COVID Summit. And that's where you'll be able to find that, share that with everybody, share the great videos. That's where I found the one that I'm about to show you um, here. I'm going to go ahead and stop that and, and bring you uh, the one. Any comment on that, um, Javier? No. I wish they'd actually, I know that these declarations take time and they've had this up for uh uh, or they've made changes to it uh, over the past few weeks. Uh, mm -hmm. But, you know, also the, the evidence for the, the spike protein, the S1 glycoprotein, actually uh, being able to uh, enter into cells and affect uh, uh, the nucleus uh, is becoming more and more apparent. And at this point, I have to agree with a lot of the uh, work of uh, Dr. David Martin that mm -hmm. we need to start calling uh, SARS-CoV-2 not a virus, but a bioweapon. I think that the evidence now is becoming more and more clear that this was an engineered product mm -hmm. uh, that was released either accidentally or on purpose, and that it should have never been released, and it should have never been uh, uh, produced in violation of uh, federal law mm -hmm. and also international law at this point. Uh, and again, the S1 glycoprotein, if I was to design a vaccine, that would be the last epitope I would use, just given what we know about the S1 glycoprotein for SARS-CoV-1. Yeah. And we've known about it for years. Right. And we, you know, and it's just tragic that individuals like uh, you and I, who are not in the vaccine industry, um, are able to look at the data and the science and see so clearly. Yes. Like, why did it doesn't make common sense, Javier? No, no. Nothing that's happening makes any common sense. And one of the inventors of mRNA technology, the mRNA vaccine, um, remind me of his name. It's this oh, Bob Malone or Robert Malone. Dr. Robert Malone, his, his video is also, he was at that conference at that summit. His video is there as well. And when you got the guy who invented it saying, whoa, 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 we can't do this. And then you've got, um, Dr. Um, I'm, I'm terrible with names this name this evening. Um, Van Bosch, Van der Bosch. Geert Van der Bosch. Thank you. No, I know one right. I didn't say it right. <laughs> 
Um, and he has been saying for a very long time, and he repeated it again on the high wire, love the highwire.com. watch this Thursday's episode for a great interview with him. And he predicted if you, you know, there's so many things that are causing these severe variants that are yes. happening. So, you know, part of it is just um, doing a mass vaccination under high viral pressure. It's been predicted. They know this happens, that you end up getting immune escape. And, and so, um, and then you've got products being used that will cause immune escape, including these vaccines. And now there is a particular drug. So what I'm going to share now with everybody is this wonderful Dr. Campbell, who has done some great videos. I highly recommend looking up all that he's done. Great guy. And he compared the new Pfizer drug to ivermectin. So this, this, yeah, you're laughing. It's, it's pretty good here. So let's go ahead and see what he has to say and chime in anytime you want here. A warm welcome to today's talk. It's Tuesday, the 9th of November. Now, yesterday we looked at Pfizer's new antiviral drug that shows very high levels of efficacy in preventing serious disease, hospitalization and people dying, which was interesting. And that drug works in a particular way. It has a particular what we call a pharmacodynamic action. It works in a particular way. Um, but there's another generic drug called ivermectin that you might have heard of that works in exactly a same way as that. Now, no one's saying that information has been deliberately suppressed for years while millions of people have died. But what we are going to show on this video is conclusive. Did you just hear what he said? <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, yes. Millions of people have died while they have, you know, he's saying nobody's saying that. Well, Bernadette is saying that, you know, Dr. Campbell probably cannot say that, you know, um, just with his status and everything and being a scientist. But Bernadette, the advocate, the activist, the mom, mama bear. Yep. <laughs> she's saying it. Yeah. <laughs> Proof from the literature that this modality of action is the same. So if you're up for that, stick around. It's not an easy watch, but I've broken it down as much as I can. Now, just before we crack into that, we need to look at what's happening. So when a virus, when a virus in this case, SARS coronavirus 2 gets into a cell, what happens is it makes lots of proteins. It starts off making proteins and these proteins are long proteins. So that's one long protein there. There's another long protein there made out of hundreds of amino acids, sometimes a few thousand amino acids, all strung together. Now, the problem is with these long proteins is they're too long for the job that's required. So it's a bit like a building site and a big log of wood arrives. It needs to be trimmed down into bits that fit in your door frames and your window frames. So this needs to be trimmed down. So these proteins need to be trimmed down. Now, so I want to under, uh, make sure listeners understand that when you get infected with a virus, there you know there's so much that enter into your nose and throat, and then it has to get past your physical barriers. You know that's why good humidity is good, so it can't get through those physical barriers. But if it gets through, then it wants to get into your cells and multiply. It wants to replicate. And so when, when he's talking about these proteins and that they're too big, he means that that virus can't use them because they're not usable to replicate itself with. So that's, um, does, does, did I explain that correctly, Javier? Yeah, okay. My PhD in-house. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. How do we trim down a protein, of course, is the question. Well, it has to be done in a biochemical way. 
And the way it's done, particularly in SARS coronavirus 2, is there's an enzyme called 3CL protease. Now, protease is an enzyme which breaks down protein. So this is 3CL protease, and that will break down proteins. It's what we call proteolytic. And it will take these long proteins and it will chop them into shorter proteins. It's what we call an endopeptidase. So now instead of having two, one long protein, we've got two short ones. And these fit together just nicely to the, to the new virus that we're, we're trying to make. Whereas before it was far too long, it had to be chopped. So that is the, that is the, the protease. Now, these new drugs are what we call protease inhibitors. They stop the protease from working. So here's my, here's my protease here. That's my that's my three CL protein. And for those on the radio, my, he's uh, holding up some scissors. Proteins into the right length, and a protease inhibitor is a bit like this tape, and it's going to stop the protease and from working. Taping so around the scissors a, so they can't open and close. We have now inhibited the action of the protease. It's now inhibited. So what I'm going to do now is I have a long protein here. So it, so that one's okay, we've done that one. So that fits in nicely into the virus. But now there's another long protein here that needs processed. So uh, the protease, the 3CL protease comes along, ready to chop this up into shape. And, oh, I can't open it now. So what we've done is we've bind, bounded up the active site of the protease. And, and that's what these drugs do. They bind the active site of the protease and they stop the protease from working. That means they stop the protease from chopping up the big proteins into smaller proteins, into these strings of amino acids so they can't build the virus. So it inhibits viral replication, these protease inhibitors. So that's kind of what is happening here. Now... This is the new Pfizer medication here that's just come out. New Pfizer uh, antiviral. Um, uh, but we're going to compare it with ivermectin in this video. A uh, pharmacodynamic analysis uh, by me. Uh, pharmacodynamics is how the pharmacy works, how the drug works in affecting the body. Now, this is the new Pfizer molecule here. This, this is the new drug. And uh, this is the shape of it here. So it's got three fluorides there. So it's interesting. Uh, that's the shape of the molecule. Fair enough. Now, this is a new molecule. Um, well, certainly on me, but I'm no molecular expert. But so here we have, for example, uh, ritinavir, which uh, was an old uh, antiviral drug that had been using since 1996 and which, in fact, will be given with the new one to work together. So we can see that there, I think we can see that they're different shaped molecules, can't we? There's no Fs on this one, for example. So, so, so that's the different molecule. So if this molecule was patented and this is a new molecule, this molecule will be out of patent, even though it has similar actions. Then if we look at ivermectin, which is also um, out of patent, of course, can't make any money out of ivermectin. Um, then where is it? Uh, there we go. So that's the ivermectin molecule there. And we see that's a completely different shape to this new Pfizer uh, molecule here. So they're completely different looking molecules. So as a completely different looking molecule, I would imagine that that's absolutely fine to, to patent that because it's a new molecule. And when, when you patent a drug, you can make uh, money out of it for the next 20 years after, after the patent date in, 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 mo in most jurisdictions. Of course, by the time the drug gets to market, it's often a bit less than that, but um, that's the sort of time when you can make some serious money out of these things. Now, um, first of all, um, 
This is the new Pfizer drug here, the PFO732. Uh, it's designed to block the activity of the SARS coronavirus 2 3CL protease. 3CL protease. That. So that 3CL protease now it won't work, it won't open, so I can't chop my proteins into the correct length to build a nice new virus. Now evidence for that, because we always have to give the evidence, the evidence for that is in this paper that we looked at yesterday. So check it out and there's evidence for that there. That is them saying how exactly how this uh, this new drug is going to work. And he was showing there, and you know, when people can go back and look and um, we'll provide links to this video, the, the Pfizer data on their, their wonderful product, you know, and, um, and showing how it works. I'm going to skip ahead just a little bit here in the, in the video, um, because he shows that, yes, the Pfizer product inhibits, you know, the ability to clip those proteins so that it inhibits replication of, of the virus. But then he goes to look at ivermectin. Ivermectin also does that. Um, let me see. Find a, a screen for these up. compounds and uh, the activity of anti-SARS coronavirus 2 viral infection was confirmed in seven of the 23 compounds. So they found seven compounds that were worth looking at that would uh, have this. Um, so, yeah, Javier, I thought that was interesting that he was talking about there because I remember um, early in 2020, somebody used some big supercomputer and went through all the molecules um, in it, that they knew that existed, you know, through all the medicines, herbs, you know, anything you can, all the drugs to see what might work against the SARS-CoV-2 virus, against yes. various proteins and, all, and binding sites, right? And they did come up with um, quite a few things, a huge list. In fact, that list contains many of the things some of the doctors I've interviewed on this show turned out to use like vitamin C and D and zinc, um, melatonin and various herbs. Um, there's some great Chinese herbs that they're using in China, you know, yep. <laughs> that do a fabulous job. Um, this particular study that Dr. Campbell is talking about was looking in particular for something that had to do with that, um, that one receptor, right? And they found yeah. seven compounds, one of which was ivermectin. Right. Protease inhibiting effect. And this paper also helpfully gives another explanation of it, hopefully the same as mine. But there it is here. So, um, Here's the, here's the chain of uh, amino acids forming the protein. That one's far too long, so it's got to be chopped by that little pair of scissors <laughs> there, which is, the, uh, which is the protease. That's the scissors of the protease, of course. And it chops it up into two bits, which are nice uh, virus-sized protein chunks that can be used in the door frames and window frames or whatever. Uh, anatomical uh, molecular architecture is required for the virus. So um, that was screening compounds. Now, next, there was a lot of papers and analysing these. So uh, this is uh, microscopic interactions between ivermectin and key human and viral proteins involved in SARS-CoV-2 infection. Now, ov obviously, you want the evidence for this. You're not going to take my word for it. Here it is. It's on this paper here from no less than the Royal Society of Chemistry. And again, thankfully, all these are available. And if you're a biochemist, you'll understand that. If not, you'll just get the gist the same as me. <laughs> but uh, I think we have got the gist. Um, now, that's the reference for that one there. Um, the strength and uh, 
persistence of the interaction between ivermectin and the binding site of the 3CL protease indicate that a partial inhibition of the catalytic activity, in other words, the way that the enzyme works, could have a place as the drug interactions with the main subdomain that define the enzyme <laughs> define the enzyme binding pocket. Now, the enzyme binding pocket, of course, the protease is an enzyme. So what it's saying here is, so the enzyme's obviously not like a pair of scissors, but if we imagine it's like a pair of scissors, so imagine it's got kind of a blade there, and it's got a, it's got a bit goes around there, and kind of another blade there. Well, the, 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 the enzyme binding pocket is that the substrate will bind into that bit there and hold the substrate while it gets chopped up. So for those um, just listening to the audio, it, he kind of drew like a Pac-Man. And when yep. the mouth is open, that gets filled in with ivermectin. And so that Pac-Man can't bite down and it can't do what it wants to do. It can't latch on. Yeah. So I'm going to go ahead and move it ahead a little bit. Um, he goes on, he ends up, let's go down to maybe just the end of this thing here. He finds, was it five or six? mechanisms of action that ivermectin has that's been proven by the studies to inhibit viral replication or prevent um, the virus from you know doing what it wants to do the new drug by pfizer only has one mechanism one mechanism of action um, and I think I've, I think the, the rest here, I'm hoping if you, if I don't capture what I wanted you to hear, I will repeat it myself when we get done. I got just a few minutes here. Wait, because the original Pfizer paper says that the new Pfizer medication is designed to block the activity of the SARS coronavirus to three chymotryptin-like protease. In other words, it acts the same way as the sellotape round the pair of scissors, as indeed we have given um, evidence for um, ivermectin doing now we, we could we could give many other examples i might just give um yeah i'll give a, one other brief example here i think because i don't want to get too close so um just briefly this is from this evidence here is from this paper here always give the evidence um frontiers in microbiology published in january 2021 again all the information there and you can download the pdf download the article it's great that these are all uh freely available which is just brilliant um molecular docking reveals ivermectin and remdesivir as uh, potential repurposed drugs against sars coronavirus 2 this paper said don't take my word for it check it out that's what it says right with sars coronavirus 2 um now first of all um the ivermectin inhibits the spike protein this is saying so as we know the spike protein in the virus here the spike protein has to fit into the ace2 receptor site on the cell surface in order to uh, in order to get into the cell so this is saying that the ivermectin clogs up the spike protein it no longer fits because that's got to be a perfect fit so with SARS coronavirus 2 spike protein ivermectin showed a high binding affinity in other words that hung on good and tight Right. It bound it, and that would stop the spike protein from infecting the cell. Ivermectin showed a high binding affinity to the uh, to the spike protein, as well as the human cell surfaces receptor of the ACE2. So and that's the other one that it can bind into there. So in other words, not only does it clog up uh, that, it clogs up this as well. Therefore, it's a double reason not to fit. So to, in other words, this is the key here, isn't it? That's the key, and this is the lock. 
So not only does Ivermectin uh, bend the key, it also stuffs plasticine into the lock, would be another way to do it. So you're not going to get the binding there. So that's interesting molecular intimation of possible uh, pharmacodynamic uh, modalities of efficacy. In agreement with our findings, ivermectin was found to be docked between the viral spike and the ACE2 receptor. Well, there you go. It clogs, in other words, it clogs that space up there. So you don't get the binding. Therefore, the virus can't stick its RNA into the cell. The RNA cannot penetrate. The viral RNA cannot penetrate the cell because it has to dock first in this process called adsorption. In agreement to our findings, ivermectin, yeah, I've said that, so clogs, clogs up both. Now, it also, uh, binding interactions of selected drugs with human um, ACE2 protein, other ACE2 proteins as well. So it, it's binding up other, other um, ACE2 binding proteins. I'm not going to go into the detail. They're in the paper if you want it. Uh, it all, ivermectin also binds with interaction with selected uh, human ACE2 proteins, as we've said, but that's another sort of set of proteins. Uh, with SARS-2 uh, glycoproteins, ivermectin has the highest binding efficiency to the predicted active site of the protein. In other words, good, so it's clogging up this protein as well, which is great. Um, and again, th th this, other, this other protein here, NSP14, don't know what it is, but it, ivermectin clogs it up, shows the highest binding affinity. And uh, binding interaction with selected drugs with SARS coronavirus 2 PL. PL protein, I don't know what that is either, but again, it clogs it, it clogs it up, it clogs it up. So whereas the Pfizer drug is only working, as far as we've been told in the Pfizer press release, against one uh, biochemical modality of rep viral replication, uh, the ivermectin is working at many different levels. Now, the fact that the, the, the Pfizer medicine is only working against one particular uh, biochemical pathway means to me that they that the virus could learn to avoid that it could evolve to be drug resistant as indeed the early uh, antiretrovirals did with hiv mm -hmm. so um that's possible with ivermectin because it's working on so many different levels um that the uh, the the um the, the idea that a virus would mutate in a dozen different ways to avoid all those different mechanisms or, or whatever it is, six six mechanisms we've talked about today, I think. All of the, if it, the idea that we get six mutations that could dodge all of those all at the same time is yeah. uh, improbable, to put, it, to put it mildly. So I've got a message here for, uh, for world leaders, a brief message to world leaders, people that are making the decisions about this. Come on, you all. Uh, you're not a horse. You're not a cow. Um... In other words, world leaders, you're not a horse, you're not a cow. Come on, you all. Um, you've got a human intellect. Let's use it to follow the scientific evidence to save human pain, suffering and death. Thank you for watching. What a dear man. And, um, yes. and you know what he was um, doing there, right? With the, come on, y'all. Does that sound mm -hmm. familiar? Oh, yes. Yeah. Go ahead and tell the audience there in case they don't recognize that. Oh, basically from Blind Joe, wasn't it? No, that was the FDA tweeted out. That's right. When they're trying to stop people from using ivermectin because whoever's playing them wants to usher in the Pfizer drug. Yes. They actually tweeted out, come on, y'all. You aren't horses or cows. Don't take veterinary medicine. Yes. Yeah. And it's not veterinary medicine. It's medicine that won a Nobel Prize for saving human lives, right? Exactly. So that's what he was mocking right there with. Come on, y'all. That was a nice dig. I love it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, just, uh, and just to uh, 
briefly point out the fact that he said that it blocks the interaction between the uh, S1 glycoprotein and the ACE2 receptor means that uh, people that have taken the, uh, uh, the vaccine and are producing S1 glycoprotein uh, using ivermectin will help mitigate symptoms associated with the vaccine. So vitamin oh, wow. D, vitamin C, and ivermectin, mm -hmm. curcumin, all these mm -hmm. other uh, antiviral drugs mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. should be very efficacious against any sort of uh, symptoms or side effects associated with the, uh, with the vet. With, well, I shouldn't call it a vaccine with a biologic injectable uh, produced yeah. by, by Pfizer, Moderna and, and Johnson and Johnson. Yeah. I go back and forth as to whether or not I'm going to use the word vaccine just to be well understood and just right. get the other message across you know, sometimes it's really challenging if you start off saying the genetic therapy, you just go off on that. You know, people only hear that and stop listening. Exactly. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and I, I had another. Oh, one of the things I sort of skipped through is he he showed the price difference. So the <laughs> it's huge. Yeah, it's huge. Several. Um, what was this product? This one is. Um, was it several thousand dollars a course versus five cents a pill? Correct. Um, yeah, yeah. And I apologize, my I've got something in my eye here. So my eye is <laughs> No worries. I'm not crying, although this is obviously cry worthy here, but um, yeah. So yeah, you know, this is what it is to lead an informed life, right? That's what this show is about. We want to help you find those resources like the videos by Dr. Campbell. Uh, and then he says, don't trust me, right. go read the resources that I'm sending you to. Right. And so, you know, we just have to wake up more people to the fact that very good people are reading very bad copy Yes, at CBS, you know, NBC, ABC, all the major, you know, radio stations. And it's so funny because I listen to radio stations that have some really great hosts yes. that are, you know, they're onto it. They're following the science. They're bringing on great. And in between, they go to the national news and, and even my own station here. And I love KKNW and no offense to them, but there will be either news breaks that are pushing the vaccines or um, sometimes it'll be a PSA, public service mm -hmm. an announcement that, you know, is before or after my show that is, you know, pretty, the, pretty much the opposite of what I'm saying on right. the show. Um, those official sources, nobody is vetting except us and, you know, the great doctors and scientists. And that's a concern. That is very much a concern. I have to agree with you 100% there. And again, you know, it's, it's funny when... Uh, if it, if it is our job to vet and to understand public health and to implement public health, why the hell are we paying these people? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, I had another one. I'm not sure I grabbed it. I might grab it for the, for the next hour. <clears throat> I wanted to play for you. Senator Cassidy in DC interviewing um, Rochelle Walensky, head of the CDC. And, you know, what, what's really interesting with, with him is a couple of years ago, I was in D.C. in a Senate hearing where almost, <clears throat> almost no members of the public got in. So several of us from Informed Choice Washington uh, flew to D.C. to this big hearing on vaccine hesitancy. 
right? God. And there were hundreds of people, 6 a.m. in the hallway outside this hearing room, lined up. Some of them have their kids with them, vaccine injured children, to get in. We were told there were 300 seats to get into this place. And wow. then they come out. And it was really interesting. Security started to grow and they came out and say, well, you know, no, there's only going to be 50 seats for like 50. And there's hundreds and hundreds of people here. Yes. Right. And then they came out and said 20. And in the end, 12 of us got in. The 12 of us at the front of the line got in. And when we got into this hearing room, they had seats for us that weren't real seats behind the cameras. And all the seats were full and they were what we called fake people. What we think happened was they were afraid of our reactions, our emotional reactions or whatever we might do or something in that hearing room to the lies about to be told that they didn't want us there. They didn't want us in front of the cameras. And so they got staffers to come sit in the chairs. We didn't see them enter the hearing room. They came in through back doors. Of course they did. We were at the main public entrance and they brought them in through back doors, filled it up. It was a travesty. And in that, um, in that meeting, um, Washington state's secretary of health and Dr. John Wiesman proceeded to outright lie to Senator Cassidy about the measles. He said, um, well, you know, there was a death in Washington state in the past 10 years of a child who caught it at school, which is an absolute outright lie. And when there's only been one death in the United States in the past 20 years, you've got to know the details are known and the Secretary of of Health knows the details fully. What happened was an adult woman in a hospital clinic facility who had severely um, immune compromised um, system and was on immune suppressing medication caught measles or was exposed to measles from somebody at that care facility who'd been vaccinated, but it had waned. Exactly. And they had entered this facility and she was not given as she should have been um, the antibodies that you can be given, you know, the uh, immune globulin to measles that her physicians had made the decision, well, yeah, she was exposed, but we don't think she's going to need it. You know, they probably was the decision they thought was best and they were wrong. (laughs) Maybe we don't know. The autopsy was six months later. There's a whole bunch of other things that went with it, but namely it was not a child and it wasn't anybody caught it at a school setting, but this lie was told. And as we were sitting there, the brilliant Carl Kanthak, who's in Washington state, who's a complete data guy, adore Carl, He's got his laptop with him. He's sitting there. He pops it open. He's got the the newspaper article to prove this guy (laughs) wrong, right? To prove him wrong. And and we emailed it immediately to everybody on that committee and and said that this had, but nothing happened. There was no apology made, no change. And it looks like we just got a couple of minutes left in this hour. So anyway, I'm going to go find that real quick on the break. And I want to play for you how he has seemed to doing some uh, waking up 
um, at this time of COVID. So uh, the music's going to be playing us uh, off here in a minute. We may have a guest. We may not. We've got a busy lawyer who's trying to join us if she can. If not, we're going to get her on another time. Perfect. And we've and we've got a clip of Peter McCullough that you're going to really want to hear. It's it's fantastic. Everybody needs to hear this message. All righty then. So you've been listening to an Informed Life Radio at 1150 AM KKNW. Stay tuned. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Lynn Redwood, president of the nonprofit Children's Health Defense. Our chairman, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and our entire team are devoted to ending the epidemic of illnesses and disorders plaguing our children today. Through legal action, we're working to hold industries and government agencies accountable and to establish safeguards to prevent further harm. We're working overtime during this COVID-19 crisis to keep you informed about the politics and science of rush vaccine candidates. Freedom and our children's futures have never been more in jeopardy. But we can succeed. With your help, we can stop the devastation and give our children and grandchildren the healthy future they deserve. To learn more about what we're doing and how you can help, visit childrenshealthdefense.org and sign up for our free news. Please visit childrenshealthdefense.org today. Are you suffering from a sinking feeling that the COVID-19 pandemic is being blown out of proportion and that nothing in the news is making any sense? If so, then there is a fact-based, science-driven news show designed just for you. My name is Del Bigtree, and I am the host of The High Wire, the world's most trusted news source in digital media when it comes to accurate, science-based reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic. From COVID-19 vaccine development to mask mandates, school shutdowns to job layoffs, The High Wire goes beyond providing you with the most accurate, evidence-based investigations. We send you links to the sources for all of our reporting so that you can further your own investigation and come to your own informed conclusions. High above the agenda-driven circus of mainstream media, we do not run. We do not hide from the truth. Instead, we walk the high wire. If you care about truth, then join us on Instagram, Twitter, Roku, and our website, thehighwire.com. Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization that advocates for healthy immunity, medical freedom, and fully informed medical consent. The right to make medical choices without coercion is fundamental to our civil liberties and a basic principle in all human rights declarations. To learn more, tune in each Friday from 3 to 5 p.m. to an Informed Life Radio and visit the website informedchoicewa.org. It's time to take a stand for medical freedom. Go to informedchoicewa.org today. Welcome back to an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW. I'm your host, Bernadette Pager, with my co-host, Javier Figueroa. Hey, Javier. Hello, everyone out there. Good to be heard. 
Oh, it is so good to be heard. And, you know, just as we were leaving for this break, I was telling you about this this hearing with Senator Cassidy and the head of the CDC. So I did find it and I'm going to see if I can play it here, Um, playing it directly from YouTube sharing sound. So let's see if it works. We'll, We'll give it a try. Let's try that. As I walked in, I came in late. One of either you or Dr. Fauci were saying that the reason that we're not saying that natural immunity is protective as is a vaccine, even though there's recent publications showing that six to eight months out, 92% of those with natural immunity have T cells, B cells, and antibodies that would be considered adequate to protect. And indeed, B cell continues to climb. That we don't have data. Now, in your response to Mr. Casey, you just mentioned that CDC has access to tens of thousands of EHRs. And I've been told that HHS or CDC has access to patient identifiable data as to who tests positive. So I do that as a prologue. If we don't know that natural immunity confers protection against future infection, it's because we've decided not to look. Because I've learned that there is a cohort of people that we know have been previously infected. We've got the bench research showing that the uh, triad of antibodies, T cells, and B cells are there, and that 92% of them are still there at age at six months out. So why don't we, why have we not done the research showing that natural immunity confers protection against recurrent infection? Yeah, thank you so much for allowing me to clarify this point because I understand I understand the question. Um, first of all, let me just reiterate that our current stand after reviewing 96 papers and a scientific brief on this issue is that everyone who's been previously infected should be vaccinated. But that's um, not my question. Right, agreed. So, so, and part of the challenge here is, as you know, the infection-induced immunity and the biases associated with retrospectively looking at the data. Several of those papers that we reviewed for that brief have demonstrated that the kind of disease that you had at the time you had it matters. Um, did you have disease a year and a half ago? Did you have, were you an older Can person? Can I stop you for a second? Were you- we could do this prospectively because you know who is actually, apparently I'm told you've got patient identifiable data and you would be able to say, okay, six months ago, we're going to start everybody infected within the last six months and be able to follow their EHR mm-hmm. prospectively to see this. I mean, theoretically, CDC has the ability to do this right now. Yet that, too, would have its own biases. So one of the things that we have demonstrated in the scientific brief is that asymptomatic and mildly symptomatic people who might not present to their providers, might present to an urgent care clinic, who might not be... recorded in their own EHR likely have less robust protection than those who've been severely But that that could be established prospectively if using the data that you have. And you could even say, if you had symptomatic infection, you don't need to be vaccinated, we would consider you immune, you don't have to be subjected to the mandate. But if, if we had any... data, if we had data that demonstrated a correlation of protection, Dr. Fauci already mentioned data that they're working on to look at correlates of protection, not just in antibodies, but as you noted, in T cell function as well. So if we were able to document a correlate of protection, we absolutely could but prospectively follow. But this, this paper follow. that I'm reading from, CD, from NIH speaks that there is durable memory of the virus up to eight months after infection in 95% of the people who recovered including B cells, which continue to climb, T cells, and antibody. And I'm also saying you could do it clinically because we have data that's patient identifiable 
that we could go back and look and see if they were exposed. They could be in a hot spot like Louisiana, where you know they're being exposed, mm -hmm. and then you would see, not just by lab data, but empirically. I'm a, I can tell you the American people intuitively understand this, and they feel a little bit like we're being willfully blind to it. I have limited time. Let me just ask you something else. What percent of CDC employees are vaccinated? We're actively encouraging vaccination in all of our employees and doing a lot of education and outreach in order to get our agency fully vaccinated. And the, but the percent? I, I don't have that for you today. I'm told that 75, to, um, some north of 75% of CDC employees at headquarters are still working remotely. Is that correct? Um, we are following um, regulations through HHS and the federal government. No, that's not my question. I apologize to be rude, but, but, but I'm asking a very straightforward question. I've been told that north of 75% of employees at, at, at CDC headquarters are working remotely. Is that correct? Senator, I don't actually know the number off the top of okay, my when head. When you so look I'd down the to... hallway, are there empty desks? Are over 50% of the desks empty? Senator, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. What I will tell you is that we're working closely within HHS and the administration to follow the governmental rules for return to There was a recent GAO report that shows, and released in the last two weeks, that there's been no coordinated response on the federal government to get people back into work. Now, if there's any agency that, since we have teachers in Fulton County are back at work, that the caseload of COVID in Fulton County is about 88. At its peak, it was 606. Uh, if what I've been told by someone who, frankly, kind of knows, that people in laboratories are not showing up, I have no clue how people, how laboratory workers who presumably are vaccinated wearing PPE would consider themselves eligible to stay at home. Uh, I say this because I just want to echo, we've got to lead by example in the federal government. If our public health agencies don't have enough confidence in the immunization and in the PPE to go back to work, fighting infectious diseases, there's going to be a lot of undermining of, an, of a willingness to further fund public health. We absolutely have our essential labs back at work conducting their essential research. Toward I'm just going to go ahead and silence her now. Um, yeah, this is the reason why you don't allow technocrats to dictate your life. That is why they're called inalienable rights and mm -hmm. technocrats have zero say in it. That was the worst prevarication, obfuscation, and not wanting to answer a very simple question. The fact mm -hmm. of the matter is that CDC scientists even there are resisting vaccine and mm -hmm. uh, mandates. And, you know, if you don't have to show up to work and you're getting paid, great. Right. Unless it's the taxpayer money funding your salary there. And, you know, it, it the, um, the caution with which she has for saying that natural immunity is protected, where's that caution for a brand new genetic therapy? When natural immunity has been known about for other viruses for, you know, how many, how long, how long centuries, we know, centuries we've known about robust and we know about we know that if you had the original SARS-CoV, that they're still immune. 17 years later, people who yes. got the SARS-1 are still immune. Yes. So why is she being so freaking cautious in, in, in and now looking for a correlate of protection? Where the hell is that? I, I, did I cuss? I apologize. Where's the correlate of protection between the vaccine and SARS-CoV-2? She has admitted in other interviews that it doesn't exist. It doesn't prevent infection. 
Correct. Whereas natural immunity does. So, yep. you know, I mean, the double standard that she treats natural immunity. And, you know, if you look at all, I wish, I wish somebody, one of our scientists who knows how to do it right, you know, in, with the proper presentation, I want to see, because it's, it's my, it's my guess that if we were to graph out and do side-by-side -side comparison and really look at natural immunity, if you were to use the vaccination language, we would say it's 100% effective and 99. whatever percent safe. It would depend on your age and your health right. status. If you have four underlying health conditions and you're 80 years old, it would natural immunity would be 100% effective, but maybe only 90, you know, 7% safe. Safe, right, right, exactly, yeah. If you're anything under than that with fewer chronic, it gets better and better and better until, you know, if you're under 30, basically, it's virtually 100% safe and 100% effective. Exactly. Um, that's natural immunity. And there's just the, these products cannot touch it. No, but so close. why you're watching this and our elected official, bless his heart, is challenging an agency that's supposed to be working for us. Well, that's one of the reasons that they need to just say the EUA is over mm -hmm. and that'll actually put CDC back in the back seat where it needs to be. The EUA has allowed the CDC to take lead and basically override Congress. That's the problem. Well, the first of all, there, you know, whether or not there's an emergency at various times of the past two years, you know, is up for debate here. Right. You know, but currently there is not. And these these um, injections don't qualify for EUA and they never have because we've always had the treatments, right? Correct. Yeah. And with that, we're going to move on to the wonder, wonderful Dr. Peter McCullough. Now, this was a presentation from that global COVID um, summit that took place in Florida that we were talking about. Let me go ahead and um, do share screen and share sound and grab this and grab this. This is such a dear man. I did have the pleasure of bringing him on the show Uh a while ago, such a dear, intelligent man risking everything to do this. Thank you. Thank you. I want to extend my welcome to each and every one of you. And uh, thank you so much for your time and your generosity and your care and your concern. As introduced, I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I'm an internist, a cardiologist. I'm also a trained epidemiologist. I train in epidemiology at the University of Michigan. I'm currently in academic practice in Dallas, Texas. And as, uh, as so many of you, I have really thrown my entire clinical and academic career right into the path of SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19 for a reason. And I recognized early that this was going to be the medical challenge of our clinical and academic careers. And I did not want to be on the sideline. I was not going to be one of those that was going to watch others uh, in this epic battle. And it's a battle uh, certainly of, of mankind versus the virus. But I think in many ways it's a battle of good versus evil. And... Um, And I, I told Tucker Carlson that when I came off set, I said, you know what, this is mano e viro, and it also has this very uh, a dark uh, versus very light contrast that we have 
in COVID-19. The theme of this symposium is, uh, has three major parts to it. One deals with childhood vaccination, which I think is really the public health issue on the table right now. The second has to do with natural immunity and where we are, what our understanding is, and how natural immunity can be a link to us breaking this grip of fear. And then lastly, about medical therapy and how important it is in our path through it. So let's take up childhood vaccination. I just have a few comments to add to doc what Dr. Alexander said. Dr. Malone gave you the molecular basis for both vaccine and natural immunity and how, uh, and how robust natural immunity can be. We have tens of millions of children in the United States. The estimate is the majority of them have actually had COVID-19. Thank goodness, they've already been through it. Most parents have missed it because it was a drippy nose. It was so mild that the children, in a sense, have been spared from this plague. And this is absolutely a real blessing. Uh, importantly, there are now two analyses I think everyone should be aware of. One is by Tracy Hogue from the University of California, Davis. It was published in late August, where she used the VAERS and VSAFE data. And she analyzed reports of myocarditis. This is heart inflammation. I told you I'm a cardiologist. I've seen this. I know exactly what I'm talking about here. The vaccine has the ability to seed cells in the heart with lipid nanoparticles. We believe the cell line is called pericytes. They are around blood vessels and they support cardiomyocytes, the main contractile cells in the heart. And it's now known that the vaccine itself from preclinical and clinical observations causes myocarditis. It's not a conjecture. The vaccines cause myocarditis, particularly Pfizer and Moderna. And I anticipate with enough data, enough exposure, it'll also be with J&J, &J, AstraZeneca, and the other vaccines available. What does this mean? This means, although it's rare, that in fact it can happen. What Tracy Hogue showed is with VAERS and VSAFE, it's more likely for a child to be hospitalized with myocarditis than taking your chance with COVID-19 and having the rare circumstance that a child gets hospitalized with COVID-19. And it doesn't assume anything with respect to treatment. So if we had a child who developed COVID-19 with some mild treatments, some easy to administer treatments, those with severe symptoms can be spared the hospitalization. So the Hogue analysis was heard on two occasions in September and October by the US FDA, by presenters that in a sense are on our team among individuals in this room and closely aligned. So what I'm telling you is our experts know this. Our CDC and FDA know this. They know that children, your children, your grandchildren are more likely to be harmed with the vaccines than they are to be helped in terms of being spared COVID-19 hospitalization and death. Second major analysis, Ron Kostoff et al. published in Toxicology Reports. The title of the paper, Why Are We Vaccinating Children for COVID-19? His analysis dealt with mortality. And across every age group, an individual who took the vaccine more prominently in the older age groups was more likely to die after the vaccine then actually take your chances with COVID and ultimately die of COVID. These two important trade of analysis were both again presented and heard by the FDA on two occasions. 
Now, I've been on national TV, um, a frequent contributor to Fox, and I've told America on multiple occasions, I think our federal agencies are running about nine months behind on interpreting the data. Most of what's coming out and most, most of what we're sharing with you is late-breaking information, information in preprint format. I'm an editor of a major journal. I deal with this every day. I can tell you from the time we fully form a manuscript to the time it gets through all of its adjudication and publication can be up to two years believe it or not. We don't have two years of time. We don't have two weeks of time. We are responding to brief reports, preprints. We're rapidly integrating information in order to best apply our skills to helping the population get through this difficult time. This is a time for expert analysis. This is a time for teamwork. We need multiple individuals from multiple different specialties coming together. America should be seeing teams of doctors on TV, giving advice, working together. We've had White House Task Force One, White House Task Force Two, and we pretty much uh, have seen little or none of them. We have one person on TV where we see that person's uh, picture in the frame, and I said it probably the most inflammatory thing I've said on Fox News is we have a medical dictator uh, that we're looking at uh, on TV, and I can tell you this is something this is something that is not healthy for America. In fact, this process of seeing one person without a range of opinions, without any uh, a debate, without any uh, uh, identification of stakeholders and driving consensus, the fundamental processes that we make fair decisions in our country, this process of seeing a medical dictator itself is a disease. It is a disease on us right now. We are and a pause there just a second because amen to that, right? Exactly. I mean, this man is so brilliant. Um, and you know, he put it, he's putting his whole career on the line for going, standing up and going bold, but he's another one of those wonderful, bold, but humble, kind, really devoted to that Hippocratic oath to saving lives and really upset what he's seeing. And it has really revealed, COVID has revealed the systemic capture of our public health system. What we have been talking about in Form Choice Washington and so many others, you know, us for a relatively short amount of time since about 2015, our little organization formed, but so many others for decades have been saying, this is wrong, you know? Um, and it it's sad that it took something as, as uh, lethal right. and greedy um, uh, like COVID to reveal the entanglements and, and the purchase of, of our public health system and the response. Absolutely. No, no question about it. Yeah. Are diseased from a public health perspective. We are diseased. There is a process. It is a disease. There's the virus that's the disease, but there is a mass psychosis and it's spreading from mind to mind to mind to mind. And the head of that disease the head of that uh, 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 pestilence that we have right now is our public health agencies. And it's sad to say that, but it is true. And I can tell you, I presented, uh, I was asked to present for the Heritage Foundation in Washington, which is a key group of think tank leaders for uh, a variety of congressional oversight panels, Senate committees, 
and to the Department of Health and Human Services, CDC, and NIH. And I told them, I said, you're not going to like my message. This was actually back in about May. I said, are you sure you want to hear it? They said, yeah, Dr. McCullough, we want to hear it. And I presented a comprehensive review on vaccine safety and efficacy. And I pointed out that we had a signal with respect to excess mortality on June, I'm sorry, January 22nd of this year. And I said, if we would have had a proper data safety monitoring board, which I do academically, I lead data safety monitoring boards right now for the National Institutes of Health. If we would have had the proper safety oversight, this vaccine program, which at that time was only for adults, would have been shut down in February for excess exactly. mortality. Before there were more lives lost. And then I, I, and I showed the run-up. I said, we are now, and actually we sit here today, we have run up to 17,000 people who have lost their lives after the vaccine. About half of those are domestic inside the United States. They report into our VAERS system. 50% die within 48 hours, 80% die within a week. We have very good analyses from Rosa McLachlan showing 86% of the time there's no other cause of the death. I can tell you the application of these data to our children are gonna translate. There will be yes. children lost with the vaccines. There will be far more children lost with the vaccines than ever having the threat of COVID. For the children, we will look back and we'll say we were better off before the vaccines came in. COVID-19 has been a menace over our population, but largely for seniors. Seniors have suffered. Oops, um, Javier, I wanted to kind of interrupt here just a bit to talk about that with do we know yet, has anybody done any studies like with the pertussis vaccine? We know like um, these COVID shots doesn't prevent infection or transmission. The other concern with the pertussis vaccine is they have learned that if your first exposure to pertussis, which is whooping cough, is through this shot, it permanently skews your immune system to have an improper um, response whenever you meet it in the future, because our immune systems learn by experience, you know, the, the, they encounter something, they have a reaction, they learn from that reaction, um, and that permanently influences their reactions in the future. Correct. And we know that if your first reaction exposure to pertussis is through this vaccine, you never become immune. So if, if, if you want to, try to avoid symptoms and it doesn't even match with the circulating strains anymore. So it, it doesn't always even help with symptoms for the few months that it might, you know, because it wanes very quickly. Um, you become a, a lifetime customer if you want to avoid symptoms, right? But you're never able to stop infection or transmission. Do we know yet, has anybody looked to see how it, the, these COVID shots might be altering the immune response to coronaviruses. Could that same thing be happening if their first exposure is through this shot? Well, yes, we already have the evidence. It's just that no one wants to sit down and write it uh, because again, the boosters, everyone talks about the boosters if there's, as if there's something new, they're just the same vaccine. They haven't changed the sequence. You know, the mRNA sequence is exactly the same as the first time they actually released it. They haven't changed the formulation of it. They haven't it's changed still, it before. The, the spike protein that it makes exactly your body generate exactly the same. Has the spike protein um, altered at all in the variants? Do we know that? Yes. 
we do have we do have variations in the variants. So there is mutations in the spike protein, but there's also mutations in other parts of the virus. So uh, again, you're you're giving the same shot against you know what is considered the alpha variant, and now we're you know how many different generations in. Um, you're not getting any benefit, or at least I haven't seen data showing that there is any benefit. And if any, if one claims that there is a benefit, uh, you know, there's probably a very small subsample or 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 uh, very skewed data and biasing mm-hmm. on it, because now we're seeing with Gibraltar, 100% vaccination, everyone's locked down, and the cases mm-hmm. are rising. Yeah, India. Yeah, 140% vaccination on Gibraltar because 40% of them have had boosters. Exactly. Yeah. And, and they're like canceling Christmas on Gibraltar yeah. because of the, the sickness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. So it, the, he just made me think of that. So not only are we putting, putting them in dangerous way, immediate danger from these products, but for young kids who are just now, their immune systems are still learning, you know, yeah. um, the first three, four years are the most critical for training your immune system, but you continue every time you encounter something new, right. Um, in those young yeah. ages to learn and that immune memory. Um, yeah. Okay. Let's go on with uh, Dr. McCullough. Doctors in our circles have lost their family members, but people in the public has lost many family members. Now the menace over the public and particularly over our children is the vaccine. It is a vaccine. I was on Alex Jones yesterday. I don't know if you've ever seen him. He's a very explosive uh, character. He's actually a lot of fun. I told him I've never shot a gun in my life. I, I'm not a hardcore uh, right winger at all. And he welcomed me into the studio, welcomed my wife. We had some great Texas barbecue afterwards. But I can tell, I told Alex Jones, I said, think about the virus and think about the vaccine. And with respect to this exposure to the spike protein and how the spike protein basically translates pathogenesis to the human body, in a, in a sense, they are one in the same. They are, dose one is the pathogenic respiratory virus. The second doses, if people get them, are actually spike protein through the vaccine. So I agree with Dr. Alexander, and I agree with the premises that Dr. Malone has created. Childhood vaccination is off the table. Children will not have the ability at age 12 to make their own decisions regarding a potential fatal administration of an injectable product that you can't get out of their body. Do not let a child make a decision at that age. Yeah, amen to that. Um, It is very concerning that around the country, um, a a lot of people are vaccinating children under what they're calling the mature minor doctrine. And, you know, that mature minor doctrine, it it actually had its foundations in Washington state. And it was, uh, it was actually somebody who was already 18, I believe, 1960s, um, already married, Um, he had some sort of health condition and he wanted to make a decision and don't quote me here, but if I remember right, he wanted like to get a vasectomy or something, but he was still considered a minor. Maybe you had to be 21 in those days to be, uh, you know, reach your majority. Um, and so he had to go to court in order to make this kind of life altering decision, whether or not he would be able to father children. And it was decided that he was mature enough because he was married. He had a job. He was independent. He was living as an adult and had the enough mental capacity to think and make decisions. Well, 
from then on, they use that what they call the mature minor doctrine to kind of weigh whether or not any individual child has the maturity to make a decision to do any sort of medical, especially if their parent is against it, right? And there's certain things that our state and in the country, children can do behind their parents' back. You know, it's it's kind of a sad state of things that it's it's sort of been abused that way. And I've even had mothers come to me absolutely in tears regarding the um, HPV vaccine because their child, 16, 14, 15, 16, still lives at home, still lives under the parents' rules, still has to be told, turn off the TV, do your homework, you know, not living independently. Um, and the parent had to drive the child to the pediatrician, but they allowed the child a little independence to go into the examining room with the doctor and nurse alone. And in that time, the child agrees to get a vaccination and comes out and the parent is devastated. You know, this is such an abuse of the mature minor doctrine. And there's some places that Washington DC, I don't remember, I know it's being challenged. I think that they've dropped the age of consent to vaccine to like 11. That is um, correct. Yeah. In Washington, D.C. Yeah, in Washington, D.C. Um, it's being yeah. challenged. Do you know if it's been overturned yet? No, it's still being challenged. This was a decision by the by the city council of Washington, D.C. Uh, to allow it. And there was one dissenter in the in the council. And he said, this is going to haunt us for the for the remainder uh, of our political careers. And I'm still in shock that they even allowed it. This is something that is so uh, poisonous to the relationship and also the, uh, the sanctity and sovereignty of the family, mm -hmm. that now you have an actual government saying, no, we will let this child decide because we said so. And this is something that has been, you know, uh, sacrosanct for millennia, where the parents have the responsibility for the child. Yeah. And now this is happening. This is... Uh, you know, in some cases, the state does step in because there is no parent there. But when you have yeah. the parents, my God, please. Yeah, parent or legal guardian. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Okay, we'll go on with Dr. McCullough. World Health Organization yesterday announced that participation in school was the equivalent of assent for getting a vaccine. Historians will write on how to... Um, wow. He just said that very recently the World Health Organization announced that if you send your child to school, you are consenting to vaccination. And at one point I was so against uh, Trump when he pulled out of the World Health Organization and refused to pay. Mm -hmm. Just hearing that right now, I am now reconsidering that position because I do not see how in the hell a no. private organization with no national uh, recognition that is there, it doesn't have a nation to to reside in and it's 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 an ngo is mm -hmm. actually able to control the health decisions of billions of people around the world it is yeah. absolute insanity it's 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 so frightening what is in either in these products or what's the goal of getting a shot in every arm to this extent that they would do something so huge. And when the science is so clear, like Dr. McCullough said, February yes. of 2021, these products should have been pulled. They had enough Correct. data there that we've got treatments that exist. Yeah. 
Yeah, let's go on. Distorted public health thinking is right now. Now, second part of what I want to talk about is natural immunity. I have told America over and over again, as a clinical doctor, that immunity after SARS-CoV-2, thank goodness, is robust, it's complete, and it's durable, it's long-lasting. SARS-CoV-2, the virus, is about 90% homologous to SARS-CoV-1. We've had SARS-1 17 years ago. The immunity has stood the test of time. The same is true with SARS-CoV-2. If it was possible to get COVID-19 a second time, really, I'm talking about severe infection, it would have happened hundreds of millions of times. Hundreds of millions. We wouldn't have missed the signal. We are still searching to try to find a real bona fide case of a second SARS-CoV-2. There's about 100 cases in the peer-reviewed literature. I've dug into them. I've emailed the authors. And every time it looks like there's confusion over a false positive test here or there. Early on, using the CDC methodology for the PCR, the CDC methodology, which was the laboratory-derived assays for all your hospital systems, including mine originally, could not distinguish between influenza and SARS-CoV-2. So it's very possible someone had influenza, they were misdiagnosed as COVID-19, and now a second time, six months later, in fact, they get the real thing. That's possible. It's very possible to get SARS-CoV-2 and get the real infection and then intermittently test positive for months afterwards. And I've had somebody in my family circle test positive 17 different times on and off after COVID-2. He didn't have COVID-19 17 times. He had it once. Please, in your mind, talk to your friends and family. It's one and done. My advice is, if you've had COVID-19, how many of you have had COVID-19? Let's see it. There you go. We've got half the people in the room. If you've had COVID-19, don't get another test. Please. All you're going to do is raise the... And you know what? You know what the CDC says for those who take the vaccine? The CDC says the same thing. If you've taken the vaccine, don't get another test. Now, that's not such good advice because, as I'll share with you, you can get COVID-19 certainly after the vaccine, but you can't with natural immunity. It's robust, complete, and durable. Uh, Paul Alexander has summarized 106 studies supporting that. You know, we need to get to the point and message this out. When your loved one is in the hospital with COVID-19 and they're sick, and they're in isolation, and they're desperate and alone, and you've recovered from COVID-19, demand your rights to go in as somebody fully immune and see your loved one. If you have a loved one who's in a senior home and nursing home, and they've had COVID-19 and they've recovered, don't let them get subject to another lockdown, another episode of, of basically solitary confinement. They've had COVID-19. They've paid the price. They need their liberties. They need freedom from the mask. They need freedom to move about their facilities. It's wrong. It's wrong. And we got to step up. And we got to step up and start. Some of you work in healthcare. A lot of you do. Some of you are administration. Start to write some innovative policies in order to start to get our freedoms back. The, the pathway towards getting out of this is recognizing natural immunity. Think about this. If we don't recognize natural immunity and we propagate the false narrative that you can get COVID-19 over and over again, it's endless. Or you can get COVID-19 again, wear a mask. You can get COVID-19 again, take a vaccine, take another vaccine, take a booster. It can keep going. I had a patient of mine who's very afraid of COVID-19. She's had bypass surgery. She's had premature coronary disease. She's got a reason 
to believe that. Well, you know what? On her own accord, she took the vaccine. She took shot number one and two of Pfizer. She even snuck in a bit early to CVS and Walgreens, and they would do this. She got a booster before they were even approved. And I've had pharmacists confirm they were doing that. If people want a little extra juice, they can get it. Well, she got a booster. She felt better. She told me about it. She goes, Dr. McCullough, I even got a booster. I know I wasn't supposed to, but I'm so afraid of COVID-19. Well, she went on a trip. She went over to the Middle East on a trip. She's kind of a out there, very uh, uh, well-known uh, uh, newscaster, media person. Sure enough, she came back with full-blown COVID-19. And there we go, we're into our protocol again, and we did the full works, monoclonal antibodies, all the drugs in sequence, and she survives, and she does great. And I saw her in the clinic on Thursday, and there she is surviving a COVID-19. I examined her, make sure there was no pericardial rub, make sure there was no signs of any lingering COVID infection in her body, and it's wonderful, it's a victory. And she looked me in the eyes, and she goes, Dr. McCullough, should I take the booster? <laughs> Another booster. And I'm telling you, I was on Alex Jones yesterday and I made the comment, I am getting deeply worried based on work done by Bruce Patterson, who has shown that in severe cases of COVID, the S1 segment of the spike protein is recoverable in human monocytes up to 15 months after the infection. It is conceivable that the spike protein, being an abnormal pathogenic protein, in the body, particularly when it's dissociated from the virus with the vaccine, and Patterson, by personal communication, believes this is the case, that in fact, each injection of messenger RNA or adenoviral DNA and the weeks of spike protein production that occur afterwards, in a sense, shower the body with spike protein and the body becomes loaded with this pathogenic protein. And then the body spends months clearing it out with um, uh, monocytes and macrophages and tries to digest this and get out of the body. You can imagine right now the current program in the United States is for an immunocompromised shot one, a month later shot two, a month later shot three, six months later shot four. With four shots and each shot taking 15 months to get that stuff out of the body. I told Alex Jones in America yesterday on national TV, I don't think will ever get the spike protein out of the body. You don't have a chance to clear it out. And the probability that spike protein accumulation will progressively lead to disease, I think, becomes incredibly high. Disease along the lines of neurologic, cardiac, immunologic, chronic inflammatory syndromes, and hematologic, and we actually have new disease entities along that way. I think, honestly, I've been following my patients carefully. 70% of my patients took the vaccine uh, in, in December, January, February. And like a good doctor, I didn't encourage them or discourage them. Remember, the vaccines are all research. They're all research. If I told a patient in one of my research studies, and I have a lot of them, that you have to be in my research study. In order for me to see you in my office, you have to be in my research study. Do you know what? I would be called on the carpet by the Institutional Review Board. I'd probably put up for FDA review. I would probably be, be incredibly penalized for that improper conduct. There yes. is a code of conduct. It's called the Nuremberg Code. And that means under no conditions will a doctor ever, ever put any pressure, coercion, or threat of reprisal for someone to either participate or not participate in research. So every single doctor, every single medical society, every single employer that has stepped over that line and told somebody that they should be involved in vaccine research 
or suffer some consequence has trampled over fun a fundamental of bioethics. Amen. Amen. Yeah, and amen. I can tell you yeah. what really ups the ante is that half of you have already had COVID-19. So you know, and Dr. Malone has shown you, there is no chance for you to benefit whatsoever. Mm -hmm. There's not a single randomized trial showing a clinical benefit in someone who's recovered from COVID-19. In fact, people like you and me were excluded from randomized trials because the FDA and the manufacturers know you can't benefit. And there are three studies, Raw, Kramer, and Methudius, and three more that show excess harm Dr. Malone has reviewed from them. And Jennifer Block's review in British Medical Journal is wonderful, multiple expert opinions saying in, under no circumstances should those who are COVID recovered take the vaccine. You know, in Block's paper, by the way, through May, using CDC and, um, uh, and uh, uh, census data, she, she calculated 120 million Americans, like half of you in the audience, have already had COVID-19. You've already had the illness. That's before the Delta outbreak. You can imagine through Delta, we're probably getting close to 200 million Americans. It's over with. You've already had it. The war's over. No more masks. You don't have to worry about it anymore. That is a big chunk of America. So I'm telling you, this natural immunity and recognizing the natural immunity is the way to break the grip of fear. We no longer... Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm going to go ahead and I hate to cut off uh, Dr. McCullough. He he goes on and on and just, just one brilliant little soundbite after another, um, pulling the studies in and he knows it so well. He's just such um, such a gift. And then, you know, we played earlier. There was Rochelle Walensky saying that, oh, we looked at the studies and, and, and we think everybody with natural immunity needs to get the vaccine. I mean, the propaganda, the marketing um, of it, and then the real doctors saying, no, no, absolutely not. No, if yeah. you got it, if you had it, then you're, you're fine. You don't need a yeah. vaccine. It doesn't provide any protection. It increases yeah. your risk from an adverse event. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, this is yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. Absolutely ridiculous. So, Javier, do you have this yet? Not yet. Not yet. The real Anthony Fauci. Yeah. Is it showing? Oh, I'm sorry for my virtual background here. Can we get it? There, yeah, right there. Right there we go. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mine just came in the wild right before the show aired. My husband brought me my case of books. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I, I also bought the Kindle copy so I could start reading it, you know? Um, but I'm, I'm one of those, I, I need to take time to sit and read. I just yeah. like tend to go nonstop. And then when I crawl in bed with a book to read, then I pass out. So it's like, shoot. <laughs> um, and this is a thick book. So this, you know, everything is happening now because of what happened pre-COVID. And if anybody wants to really understand how we got here, and why Rochelle Walensky is lying to a senator in a hearing and why um, the FDA is trying to say uh, that ivermectin does not work when the evidence is so very clear it works. They need to read this book by Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the real Anthony Fauci. Um, it is already number one on Amazon, overall, all books, not just in virology or public health, it's number one of all books right now. 
And um, I have a feeling it's going to be right, right up there for the other bookseller list too. It is Absolutely. a hot property. Um, I think they're on back order. I think they're cranking out next um, prints as fast as they can. Get yourself a copy of this. Um, get a copy for everybody that you know. You can send them the Kindle copy or the hardcover copy. Um, I do encourage you, if you can, you know, um, back before I became the advocate, um, I am a mystery writer, but I barely, I don't have time to write anymore, but I really love supporting my local bookstore, the independent bookstore. And, you know, it's really hard um, sometimes to do because if you go to Amazon, you're going to get this book for 17 bucks, right? Right. Why do I keep trying to put it in the camera? It doesn't work. You know, and it's, it's list price though at independent stores. And sometimes you can get it for a little less. It's 3250, right? right? And that's a lot of money. But if you walk down your street or drive into your town or drive in a 20 mile radius and you can't find a bookstore, that's why. Yep. Because if you want to keep a brick and mortar store open, and have people knowledgeable about books, have that com- camaraderie that, you know, it's like, it's like when you go to the neighborhood bar and everybody knows your name and you buy that beer and that beer costs as much as a six pack. Yep. You paid more for the ambiance. You paid more to support a local business. You paid more for the friendship that you experience in that environment. It's the same with books. Exactly. So if it's within your budget, Try to find a local bookstore and support them with your order. Um, and I get it. You know, I, I, I buy from Amazon, too, for, from their books because I buy a lot of books um, yep. of people that I am uh, supporting. And it's handy to have the ebook. You've got that with you whenever you want. You can pull it up. Yeah. But it's going to give that history. And I think, you know, I think the hardest part for people who are not yet with us is it all seems so outlandish. That the CDC, that our government is is completely lying to us. Yeah. And and really, uh, yeah, it's a conspiracy of good that of greed that has been that is being perpetuated by a lot of really good people caught up in this system. Go ahead. Exactly. And if people really understood how involved Fauci was in uh, allowing the AIDS epidemic to unfold the way it, it, ha- it did in the eighties, mm-hmm. I think people will begin to see Fauci in a very different way. And he's had his hands on so many different uh, epidemics and potential epidemics, real epidemics that he did nothing about. And then mm-hmm. lied about fake epidemics uh, and Basically, this guy is part of the NIH. He has been there for a very long time. He knows all the levers. He knows all the skeletons in the closet. He knows how to play the game. And, you know, right now he views himself as untouchable. And yeah. so far, no one, no one's brought up any charges. So, uh, again, the only way you can bring people like this down is by showing people the truth and shaming them out of there yeah. because right now the law is not going to, going to touch Fauci. Well, I don't know. I, I hope that does change. I think he has perjured himself enough, especially like with Rand, questioning by Rand Paul. And we saw him evading um, Senator Cassidy's questions. Um, well, that was Rochelle Walensky, but you know, a lot more of our uh, elected officials mm-hmm. are doing what we elected them to do. Thank God. And, and actually, representing the people. 
Um, it's a shame that we have to have them come between us and those public health agencies that we pay to protect us. But there we are. And well, it's at the local level, too. It's yeah. yeah. And again, not to not to dismiss the work that Rand Paul has done, but he's not done enough. He's a senator. He can bring perjury charges up against Fauci. He has not done so. Well, maybe we'll encourage him to to do that, that, you know, maybe that's what's not what's coming. Maybe he wanted to lay a really solid foundation that could not be wiggled out of, Um, you know, whether or not Tony Fauci gets what he deserves on this earth in this lifetime. um, I do believe in a certain amount of karma and wherever he goes next, he's going to have some tough lessons to learn, you know, for what he did to this planet. Um, and to human beings and, you know, right down to that, to the, to our children, you know, it's, it's one thing when he's messing with adults, not that I don't want to protect adults, but you mess with kids and no, you're done. Yeah, you're done. But what we need Javier is the lessons learned in society so that we build an entirely new system. Yes. That is incorruptible. And I think the public health has really proven they cannot be trusted with pharmaceutical um, products. They cannot be trusted to be proponents of a product and and overseeing um, safety. You know, the conflicts of interest are just just not there. We need all vaccine products, not just these COVID shots. We need all vaccine products to go back to being fully liable, you know, the vaccine makers fully liable for harm. And we need the use of them to be a personal medical decision only. Oh, you're breaking up badly there, Bernadette. Uh-oh. Can you hear me now? Let's, um, there I we go. changed a thing. Okay, there we go. I'm glad I'm back. Okay. <laughs> but I was there just saying, yeah, we need um, the product vaccines, the entire category of vaccines to be just like a statin or an antibiotic, right? Um, it needs to be something that you choose with the guidance of your trusted healthcare provider who hopefully isn't being influenced by above or handcuffed as many of them are today. And it's a personal medical decision only. That's it. If the product works, if the product is safe, people will choose it. And that's it. We we know so much about the immune system now. Yes, we do. When vaccines came into the picture, we really didn't understand. We didn't know about the gut biome. We didn't understand about what receptors were binding where. We didn't know exactly, you know, that vitamin D. I mean, how many keys in the body are there to vitamin that vitamin d are crucial for our immune system function glutathione all of this stuff we know how to address health we know that viruses are a necessary exposure to viruses and bacteria is a necessary part of how we integrate and become one with the world around us exactly right yes you know um, real health comes from the building blocks of healthy cells, not from some man-made intervention. Not that man-made interventions don't serve a useful purpose, but government cannot be trusted with them. Yeah. So I, I, you know, they might have thought they were going to take over the world and have now seven people, seven billion people on the planet forever injected over and over and over again. 
But what they have done is exposed the corruption, the dangers, their untrustworthiness, and the opposite is going to happen. Yes. Yeah. And what's going to set, what's going to happen is uh, I think that in the next uh, 10 years, we're going to see a massive decentralization of decision-making and uh, more of a, a decentralized uh, polity where you're going to mm-hmm. have each of the 30,000 different counties in the United States forming their own independent uh, uh, decision-making bodies to address local needs, which include public health and which is appropriate. One size fits all works great if you're trying to lead from the top down, but it doesn't work if you're actually trying to live a real life in your community. You actually need to address what the needs are locally. And then you can see, you will see an amazing resurgence, not only in the economy, but in the health of people, as well as in the, uh, the the establishment of really strong communities and people involved in raising themselves and their children and taking care of one another in a way that we haven't seen ever before. Amen. Amen. That is a beautiful way to, to head our show to a close. We're about ready to wrap up. I love that sentiment. Um, unfortunately, in Washington State, they passed legislation last year to do the opposite. So we got some undoing to do. Absolutely. So, thank you, Javier. You've been listening to an informed life radio on 1150 AM KKNW. We'll be back next week. During this unprecedented response to an infection outbreak, it has been made very clear that shutting down lives and businesses is not sustainable or repeatable. We've also learned that it's unnecessary. Treatments exist and always exist. For 99% of the population, nutrients and oxidative therapies that support the immune system and improve symptoms are always available to address viral infections. For the less than 1% who need more, Inexpensive, unpatentable drugs can be added to the nutrient therapies to improve outcomes. It's time each and every one of us empower ourselves with this knowledge. We need not ever bring our lives to a halt again. We can both save lives and retain the liberty that nourishes us body and soul. Learn more at healthyimmunitynow.org. That's healthyimmunitynow.org. Are you suffering from a sinking feeling that the COVID-19 pandemic is being blown out of proportion and that nothing in the news is making any sense? If so, then there is a fact-based, science-driven news show designed just for you. My name is Del Bigtree, and I am the host of The High Wire, the world's most trusted news source in digital media when it comes to accurate, science-based reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic. From COVID-19 vaccine development to mask mandates, school shutdowns to job layoffs, The High Wire goes beyond providing you with the most accurate, evidence-based investigations. We send you links to the sources for all of our reporting so that you can further your own investigation and come to your own informed conclusions. High above the agenda-driven circus of mainstream media, we do not run. We do not hide from the truth. Instead, we walk the high wire. If you care about truth, then join us on Instagram, Twitter, Roku, and our website, thehighwire.com. Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization that advocates for healthy immunity, medical freedom, and fully informed medical consent. The right to make medical choices without coercion is fundamental to our civil liberties and a basic principle in all human rights declarations. 
declarations. To learn more, tune in each Friday from 3 to 5 p.m. to an Informed Life Radio and visit the website informedchoicewa.org. It's time to take a stand for medical freedom. Go to informedchoicewa.org today.